How often do you think that happens? And is there like strategies that a provider has to, I don't want to say convince, but persuade that this might be more beneficial than not having it? These are the meaty questions that, you know, tormented me when I founded Augmetics that we've come to iterate and ultimately solve over the years. When I first started this business, I thought patients would be very concerned with this listing device at the point of care and what is it doing? And this is a personal conversation and that they would reject it. What is actually unfolded, and this has been the case for years now, is that patients are overwhelmingly accepting of the use of Augmetics in their visits. We always measure the Augmetics on rate or the turnoff rate. 98% of the time, patients accept the use of Augmatics. There's only a decline rate less than 2% of the time. What's up, everyone? I'm looking forward to sharing this fantastic conversation with Ian Kazi Shaquille, founder of the 10-year-old company Augmetics. For me, this is especially exciting because of my early interest in the Google Glass technology. I was one of the people who briefly used Google Glass back in 2013. At that time, I knew it was definitely not ready for mass adoption. And augmented reality technology is still nascent in the grand scheme of things. Although it's true that Augmentics empowered providers are mostly using dedicated smartphones, a small subset of them do actually use the glass in the clinic as well. Ian and I talk about the latest in artificial intelligence technology, patient-provider relationships, and augmented reality. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do. Before jumping in, a quick reminder that the Health Unchained podcast has launched a Supercast premium membership community where you can watch interviews before the rest of the public gets to listen to these conversations. You can find a link to our Supercast website in the episode show notes. You also get access to our AMA section and other exclusive content. Health Unchained is also a media partner for the Blockchain and Healthcare Today Symposium in New Orleans, Louisiana on September 21st, 2023. If you're interested in buying tickets or sponsoring the event, please reach out to me so I can help coordinate with your team. And for my final announcement on this episode, I am happy to share that I joined the team at Vibe Bio, where I'll be helping build out their community, which comprises of patients, researchers, and partners. I'm looking forward to working with the team on helping rare disease patient communities and biopharma executives accelerate drug development for diseases that are often neglected, unfortunately. If you're interested in learning more about the community programs and opportunities to share your patient stories, Join the Vibe Bio Discord community channel and subscribe to our Substack. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. In this episode, I'm joined by Ian Kazi Shaquille, co-founder of Augmetics, which was founded over a decade ago. Ian is currently the chief strategy officer and a director at the public company. He has a biomedical engineering degree from Duke University and an MBA from Stanford. 
We're going to be talking about his journey building Augmetics, as well as important topics around ambient documentation using AI, augmented reality technology, solutions for provider burnout, and his perceptions on blockchain tech and Web3. Ian, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Awesome to have you here as well. I heard about Augmetics maybe not a decade ago, but maybe eight or seven years ago. And I saw the Google Glass and I thought, wow, that's such a great idea. Let's put Google Glass on the faces of doctors and then it'll help them do so many more things. So talk to me about like your background and journey into discovering Google Glass and then maybe what led you to think about starting Augmetics. Yeah, well, I've always been steeped in the world of healthcare. I studied biomedical engineering in undergrad. And right after that, I worked with doctors in my first job at Edwards Life Sciences, mostly in a cardiovascular context. And one of the things I learned quickly on was that the burden of the computer, the documentation, it was quite simply the biggest pain point in the lives of doctors and providers. And that was an important lesson learned because it primed me to care when it came time to found Augmetics in 2012. And I guess that was a really fun Eureka moment for me. The story of how it all began really was at Dolores Park in San Francisco. Funny enough, I was there on a sunny summer day among friends. Some of those friends were Googlers. And one of these Googlers had in their backpack an illegal hardware prototype device they called Google Glass. At that time, the world had never seen it, heard of it. It was a total secret. And this fellow said, hey, you can try this on. Let me know what you think. Please don't take a picture. I'll get fired if you take a picture. So I put on this device in the park and I'm looking around. I'm like, this is really cool. I'm never giving this back to you. I haven't thought about doctors. Here's what you could do. And I just started verbalizing basically Augmetics right there in the park in front of all these folks. And these Googlers laughed at me. They were thinking other things. They were thinking the glass belonged on consumers. They were talking about taking a picture, GoPro, hiking, other apps along those lines. And I got into a debate with them. No, glass for enterprise and doctors specifically. And here's how and why. And like so many entrepreneurs, that feisty debate, that that seed of doubt is what really catalyzed me to become obsessed. We agreed to disagree. They went their way and my way. But I couldn't stop thinking about it, talking about it. And then a few weeks after that moment in the park, I decided to drop everything I was doing. I had just graduated from grad school at Stanford. And I decided I would found the very first glass company of any sort, Augmetics, and found it with a mission to rehumanize the provider-patient interaction. And I should probably just inform your audience. Today, we're actually multi-hardware. About 5 to 10% of our provider users across our national network today use Google Glass Gen 3 all day, every day, and they love it. We're growing with it. But actually, the remainder, 90-95% of our users use use phones on stands or on their person. There's a lot of different ways you can achieve the Augmetics experience. To clarify, I understand with the Google Glass that 5 to 10% of providers, when they use it, they can implement or they'll use the camera as well, right? It's camera plus the audio listening. So when people are using it, using their phone, are they also using the camera on their phone to accomplish the same task or is it different? It's probably at this point a good idea to explain kind of what is Augmetics. Then I'll explain how the two devices work. So basically the what we do is we place technology at the point of care and ambiently in the background. We listen into that natural, nonlinear conversation between a provider and a patient. And we, we structure that conversation into a note, an epic and Cerner, and Meditech and Allscript and whatever EHR that the doctor, the provider happens to use. 
And we do it better and faster than what the provider would do on their own. So that when they're done with that visit with the patient, because they're focused on the patient, they're, they're literally done. The note is waiting for them structured in the EHR. All they have to do is glance at it, perhaps make an edit or two, usually not. And then you just click confirm and then on to the next. And that stands in stark contrast to the way it's done most typically. Your average doctor or provider in the US spends two or three hours a day drowning in the computer, typing, charting, clicking. It's not why they went to med school. It's taking a terrible toll on their personal lives, their patient experiences, their productivity. But the simple act of using Augmetics and placing our device at the point of care and letting us perform the ambient documentation in the background just utterly solves that problem and lets physicians get back to being physicians. To answer your question, the device serves a few different important roles, but most critically, it allows us to stream the visit to our platform. And when I say stream, the audio, most importantly, and the video, also importantly. So when the provider is wearing Google Glass, our, our, our platform can obviously hear the conversation, but also see from the provider point of view. When the phone is being used, the audio is the most important part, but... Often the camera is also turned on the phone when it's sitting on the stand. Then it's often positioned in a way where the platform can see the room and what's going on. Believe it or not, the video is important. It's not vitally important or critical. A lot of the times providers will turn off the video if requested or, you know, always. But most of our providers keep it on and it's helpful for context. So imagine if you're a patient and I'm a doctor and I'm asking you, does it hurt? And you respond non-verbally with a head nod. And then I say, what about here? And I point to your elbow, but I didn't say the word right. The video visual context allows us to do more of the note without the provider having to be as stilted and verbalizing as they otherwise would have to be. For those contextual reasons, our default scenario is to have video on camera on, though there are a lot of situations where we do not have it on. That's very interesting. I have a couple of questions just from what you said. I think you mentioned that sometimes patients may want to turn off the video. They don't like the fact that the video is watching them or maybe even the audio. How often do you think that happens? And is there like strategies that a provider has to, I don't want to say convince, but persuade that this might be more beneficial than not having it? These are the meaty questions that, you know, tormented me when I founded Augmetics that we've come to iterate and ultimately solve over the years. When I first started this business, I thought patients would be very concerned with this listening device at the point of care and what is it doing? And this is a personal conversation and that they would reject it. What has actually unfolded, and this has been the case for years now, is that patients are overwhelmingly accepting of the use of Augmetics in their visits. We always measure the Augmetics on rate or the turnoff rate. 98% of the time, patients accept the use of Augmetics. There's only a decline rate less than 2% of the time. This statistic is true irrespective of the device used, phone or glass. It is true male or female. It is true young or old. It is true across multiple specialties and settings. It seems to be pervasively true. We always engage the patient, either the MA will or the front desk will. That's part of our training and protocol when we implement so, so the patient will always be, hey, your provider uses medics. Here's how it works. Here's a laminated FAQ in plain English. It explains the benefit. If you have any questions or concerns, you can tell me now and we won't use it. Or you can tell your provider at the point of care and they'll turn it off. And again, our offer rate is less than 2%. 2%. So you may wonder, like, why is that so favorable? I think for a few reasons. For one, patients are in these situations pretty deferential 
to their provider, their doctor, and what they think is best. And these, two, in these moments, they're, they're kind of used to seeing all kinds of devices and hardware in, in these environments. And three, pa- patients don't like the status quo. The alternative is the back is turned and the providers typing and running away and you'd be lucky to even get any of their time. So there's a lot in it for the patient as well to get to yes. If there is a moment of concern or um, anxiety or something special, the provider can turn can go into video off mode and the light state on the device changes, included like on the Google Glass light changes the video went on or off or the same is true with the phone. So they can easily manage through those situations if those needs arise. And that does frequently occur and help us through sensitive moments regarding the camera. That is interesting. That success rate or acceptance rate is really impressive. Another question I had is around what use cases or maybe what specific types of providers are using this. Is this like urgent care, primary care? What are we talking here? Is it like post-surgical care? What providers typically use this that you're seeing? We we work with the vast majority of specialties out there. We were groomed into being that way through our early customers. When you would go visit a large health system like a Sutter or a Common Spirit, in the early days, if you go to them and you're an entrepreneur and you have a solution and along these lines and you, you say something like, oh, this is for ortho- orthopedic surgeons, this is for dermatologists, but not psychiatrists or primary care, they I, they will say, well, we're looking for a total solution. We're looking for something that can serve the enterprise. So you can just go back to the drawing board and come back to us when you can sk- have a scalable solution to meet all of our providers. So really from the early days onward, we've been specialty broad. We work with over 35 clinic-based specialties. Our number one specialty is primary care. That constitutes about 60% of our user base nationally. Our number two is, I believe it's oncology right now, somewhere between 5 and 10%. And our number three is orthopedics, also between 5 and 10%. Then there's a long tail of other ambulatory clinic-based specialties that we serve. Everything you can name, ENT, GI, behavioral health, a lot of different clinic-based specialties. Well, yeah, it's been was- really exciting. I'll, I'll just mention this. In the last one or two years, we've also done something unique. We've started to venture into the hospital space as well. And we are now starting to serve emergency medicine doctors as well as hospitalists in the acute environment. So it's kind of new territory for us. Interesting. I was curious about the behavioral health or mental health providers. Are you seeing psychiatrists and psychologists even starting to use this? Or is there a gray area with recording that stuff or using that with AI? But believe it or not, I never thought we would be successful in those specialties, we are. We are doing very well in in behavioral health. Believe it or not, those visits very commonly resemble primary care visits with a lot of that sort of documentation requirement. And some of those, the documentation burden by providers in that specialty are, it's extraordinary and they have a huge need. And we're not finding that the placement of augmetics and the use of augmetics is affecting the physics of the equation of that sacred provider-patient conversation. We're not in quite literally every psychiatric setting, but we do well at most. And I'm surprised that it's the case. That is interesting. Thanks for sharing that. A little bit off topic here. I'm curious about the state of the augmented reality industry. I think since 2012 or whenever you had your hands on one of those Google Glass devices, it's changed a lot, right? There's been a lot of developments in terms of better batteries, faster processing, smaller chips where you can fit just more stuff, sensors. So what do you consider a state of the art? And where is this technology going? Just taking a step back, I think it's helpful to define like what's what in the space. And then I can talk about where we're seeing the evolution. In the head-mounted space, think about VR 
and then strong AR, and then light AR. VR, I think we can all imagine wearing an Oculus Rift. It's a completely immersive, high-rad virtual experience. And there are, in fact, healthcare applications there, interesting ones, helping you with therapy or pain relief or training. And there's a number of applications there. Okay, setting that aside. In the AR area, strong AR and, and, and light AR, people use different words. In my mind, strong AR is affiliated with devices like like HoloLens. And I think of it as something that provides more or less cinematic overlay onto the reality around you. They also call that mixed reality too. Yeah, mixed realities. And then on the right, we can think of light as kind of more about information snacking. It's really prioritizing mobility. Google Glass is what I would call like the archetypal device in that category. And that's really about you being a normal person in society, having smart technology on your person where you need it. I think when you're wearing Google Glass, the thing people pay most attention to is the prism. But actually, I think the most important things on it is the other fact, the, the processing power where it is, the touch, the ability to listen to cameras, and of course, the prism when you need it to kind of be exhausted. We live and play in the light AR area, the Google Glass area, and you can call it assistive reality. AR is another way of saying AR. I think there's a whole vibrant set of innovative companies and startups trying to do things in that space where we're pioneering in the world of healthcare. There are other people doing oil and gas field manufacturing, assembly. There, there are many cool use cases in this assistive AR area. In the, what you were saying, mixed AR, or strong AR area, there are also healthcare use cases. The ones that I'm seeing tend to be more around surgical planning and training and complex coordination. Those are not devices you would want to see in your provider in your psychiatric visit or running around the ED or something like that. So the, one day the devices will convert. That day is not today. And then yeah. you can tell the evolution. You can talk with reference to my category that I focus on, like Google Glass. A lot of the evolution has been on the boring side of things. It's, Making that consumer-grade device enterprise-grade, something that from a software and compliance point of view meets criteria that a health system or enterprise will allow in its midst. And so we're on the Generation 3 device now called E2, and it's come leaps and bounds. It's also improved a lot on Wi-Fi, connectivity, processing power, heat emissions. It's got a long way to go, but those are it look, the device looks the same largely as it did. In Gen 1, but huge leaps and bounds as an example. For the Gen 1 and Gen 2 device, we actually had to create custom heat sinks that we would glue onto the device because it would run so hot after eight hours of use. But with a Gen 3 device, E2, when you're doing all-day, everyday video screen, processing efficiency, the battery efficiency is such that we don't actually have to do that anymore, fortunately. That's great. And when you mentioned like in the future, it'll all come together or consolidate or whatever. I'm thinking about that Black Mirror episode where people wear contact lenses in their eyes and can basically see an augmented virtual world if they wanted to even view their own memories in a way. I don't know when that's going to happen, but it's really interesting to think about. One other question about the competitive landscape, let's say. I know that Apple has been teasing a glass hardware device. I don't know if it's coming out this year, but there's some talk about that. Any inside scoop that you have or any sort of like thoughts around their intention or what target market they're going to go after? Apple's been about to release their Google Glass competitor every year since the year I founded Augmetics over a decade ago. So I've learned to be a little bit neutral and numb to, to the rumor mill there. I think it's 
stuff is definitely happening. There are people with titles doing work in the space in Cupertino. What I hear, and it's pretty uninformed, is they're more focused on what I was referring to as the left-hand side of the spectrum in the VR and sort of mixed reality, strong AR side of the house, primarily because I think that hits at some of their consumer applications and heritage and gaming and content and things like that. I don't think they're leading with the industry and enterprise use cases, which I think is where the light AR side of the house is living. And, and last I heard, they want to develop in the light AR kind of regular glasses sort of form factor. But that's priority number two for them after priority number one. But I look forward to that. Apple's never first. <laughs> so when they do come, they want to answer Totally. I'm looking forward to it as well. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. This podcast is about how healthcare and blockchain intersect. And I know you're not a blockchain guy per se, (laughs) but I would like to just ask you, and I know we're switching topics here, still in the emerging technology space, but what is your perception of blockchain technology and Web3? And do you think that it has a role in the work that Augmentics is doing at any point? I'm radically ill-equipped to answer this question with sophistication, but I ramble about it anyway. I don't think there's a lot of applicability to augmentic, narrowly speaking, but I do think there are some interesting applications of blockchain in healthcare more broadly, and maybe one day that'll intersect with augmentics. So for one, I think the world of Healthcare services is unfortunately riddled with many events and a history of fraud and verification. And I think blockchain technologies can potentially do a lot to address fraud and related applications of medical malpractice and insurance and things of that nature. And I do believe there a big issue with healthcare compliance is also pertaining to like payment and fraud related to payment. And I just at a very superficial level, have to assume there could be some applicability there. And if I were to adventure further, I would be willing to bet that these problems are even more acute in the global health context or the developing world. And so, and as we see blockchain healthcare um, applications rise anywhere, it may, funny enough, be not in the US. And then ultimately, we'll find applications here afterwards. That's a good point. Yeah, there's many developing countries now that don't really have, like they have a healthcare system, but it's siloed, isolated, state by state or however they work. And they can use something to help them prevent them from like waste, the government from wasting money because there's a lot of waste in that situation. A lot, a lot of fraud as well in the supply chains of medical equipment, devices, drugs. So those are good answers. And authenticity and is that device... The heart valve and authentic Edwards Life Sciences heart valve, all those sort of questions, right? Yeah, that's a great point too. Jumping to a different topic now. You're talking about using AI. There's a lot of new technology like OpenAI's Whisper that sort of does something, listen to ambient noise and sound in people's conversations, then translate that and make sense out of it. How does that compare to Augmentics? Let me frame where we sit in the world of AI and automation. And then I'll comment on that specifically. We're what, what I often refer to is a hybrid AI solution that does in fact have humans in the loop. I'll explain what that means. So we have the audio video stream of the provider patient interaction. The next thing we do is we pass that stream through what we call ASR automated speech recognition. We use a medically tuned model through our partnership with Google. 
And what that outputs is a diarized transcript of everything uttered at the point of care, patient, doctor, transcript. But of course, the verbatim rendition is not a note. That's just a transcript. The next thing our system does is it takes that and runs it through our NLP engine. And what we basically do is use technology to attempt to create the note through our extractions and correlations and our modeling but in a super structured format we call note builder. But the technology is not perfect. The NLP is not perfect. The upstream ASR is not perfect. And our models have a long way to go. So while the what appears in note builder is a valiant attempt at a note, it's, it, we generally um, deploy what humans in the loop we call MDSs or medical documentation specialists to perform last mile structuring QA so that what's ready for the doctor to sign off on is perfection. They can trust it. And on, on we go. Providers have very little time for error or variability. And the level of expectation is you need a human in a loop to get this job done. So for us, the name of the game is to compress the ratios of humans to user clinician users we have. And it has been compressing. If you go back three years ago, one, two years ago, one year ago, we're able to serve more and more providers with a more and more favorable ratio of humans in the loop so that we asymptotically are approaching a near zero, zero level. We're actually this year alpha testing a product we call Augmetics Go, which is our pure AI zero humans in the loop solution. I'm really excited about that. But this year and next year, even still, the majority of our providers will be using our Augmetics Live and our Augmetics Note solutions which have varying ratios of humans in the loop to ensure quality. So to answer, you, you asked me about a new voice technology, OpenAI Whisper. That's an ASR technology. So we use, work with Google to use their ASR speech recognition technology. We would be crazy to build their ourselves. And these companies have, have mastered it and have you know, hundreds of people focus on that problem. So we focus on the NLP and other parts of the stack. It's very efficient. It's very accurate. And we don't really have a lot of gripes with how good it's gotten. So most of the Friction in our stack is on the NLP side, not the ASR side. We're really intrigued by the OpenAI solution. It may have better word error rate or other characteristics, but my tech team tells me there's some issues with using it precisely this moment. So for one, the, the main issue is they just don't have all the compliance and BAA capabilities such that we could enter it into our stack and meet all of our obligations to our conservative health system customers. I'm sure they're working on that. I'm sure Microsoft's working on that. And we welcome the competition. We we want as many ASRs out there to choose from, rove between, have the price as low as possible. But we're really happy with Google's ASR for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and I use Google's voice speech recognition a lot, and it's amazing to me. So I mean, even if it gets a little bit better with other technologies, I can't really tell the difference. <laughs> it is um, amazing. Another thing with the OpenAI one, the Whisper one, I don't think it's medically tuned. Okay. So yeah. I don't think it has a corpus that's specifically tuned to like cardiology or primary care, whereas we do get that with our Google ASR. I think everyone's working on all of these problems. And so yeah, and just also for the audience to make a note, OpenAI also uses humans right now to ensure that the results that it's outputting is getting better. I think I read an article where they're using some company in Africa and people there are getting paid like $2 an hour to read results and report back any issues. And if I'm wrong and someone's listening out there, let me know. <laughs> Put a comment out there. I'd love to know because I'm pretty sure that's what's going on. 
Okay. So I have a question about this like ambient documentation. I know we talked a lot about it, but what are some like hidden challenges that maybe we didn't discuss that is worth sharing here that people should know about? It sounds great, but there's always an there's always a but right. Most every document, most every provider theoretically wants an ambient documentation solution. They want the notes to take care of themselves and for them to get rid of the biggest pain point in their life. So overwhelmingly, we get takers and overwhelmingly providers are over the moon happy when they're using us. But if I were to find the dilemmas and where we do run into friction, it would be as not all providers are very good at verbalizing. If you've been practicing for 30 years a certain way, it's hard to change your behavior. If you're using Augmetic, you have to verbalize the history, present illness, the exam. As you're speaking with the patient, you know, you'll be referencing that your lungs sound clear, everything's normal, here's what we're going to do. By the way, that's good medicine. And in med school, they actually um, teach you these days to, as a doctor, verbalize with your patient. But some doctors were not trained that way and have a hard time adopting to active listening and verbalization. So that means they have more noting to do at the end of the day. Because if you don't verbalize, Augmetics can't read your mind. And so we don't get offered as much value. We can't do as much as we're not done yet, right? So, but usually providers kind of see the feedback loop really quickly. Like the more I verbalize, the more my notes done. So that usually goes away. But in any case, that's one source, that behavior change. The other just area of friction, I would say, is providers have a wild variety of non-standard expectations in the way they want their name. You go to 10 providers at one health system and just pick 10. This provider wants Shakespearean notes this way. This guy wants bullets, but these are not this. Every provider wants them totally different way. By the way, this is probably bad. We need standard machine-readable notes. It's not about writing an SAT essay or uh, winning a prize, but providers are so used to their note and their note ego and it being in a particular way that that can sometimes be a source of friction. We do a pretty good job of customizing to really fit the needs of any provider in the way they want their note. But it does take some time and communication for us to under, understand their note styles and give us feedback and iterate and, and things like that. So that, those would be two things I would highlight. Interesting. Something you mentioned earlier is you're taking Augmentics Go, which is the pure AI version of Augmentics. Mm-hmm. Is there a specific specialty that you're going after for that? Because maybe it's just more repeatable or easier or better results? You're right. We haven't announced all of our launch specialties that that Go will work with when we launch this year, but we've announced at minimum that primary care will be one of them. So that is a key focus for us. And the reason simply is that primary care is in our DNA. So 60% of our users are in primary care. So much of the data running through our pipes is primary care. So we're really well positioned to master that specialty. Thanks for answering that. I appreciate it. That's that's good to know. We talked a lot about AR and AI, and I want to ask you more about the provider burnout problem that we're seeing. And I think this has probably been discussed for the last decade or more, maybe. So it's not a new problem, and you're very well aware of that. But do you think technology is is it getting solved or is it getting worse with technology? I think a lot of people say, oh, we've introduced the EMR and made doctors' lives terrible now. Yeah, but you also made it easier to look back and search through all their patients. We always look at the negatives. My question is, like, how are you seeing provider burnout, generally speaking, in the industry? It's reached a fever pitch. It is an astronomical driver of interest in Augmetics. When I founded Augmetics a decade ago, burnout was a big problem. Everyone talked about it. 
But ultimately, when we were speaking to a health system, the CFO would say, you know what, I'm not going to ascribe like a hard dollar ROI. That's nice. But let's call that upside. You alleviating burnout. Oh, but let's talk about note quality. Let's talk about productivity. And if you can alleviate burnout, great. That has changed in the last three, four years. Your rigid CFOs of the world are now saying, help my providers. They're, they're quitting. They're partial quitting. There are mutinies. I, it's a war for talent. And if a provider or a physician leaves a health system, the cost for me to find a new one, retrain, I can't bear that cost. So I'm going to give you a hard measurable dollar ROI if you can help me with burnout. The great labor shortage, inflation, COVID, and those dynamics have only strengthened that, that trend. Plus, I think we're measuring more. We're measuring provider burnout way better than we used to. I think it was an ignored problem that you'd hear about, but now it's like part of HR at any hospital. Like that's part of the workflow. You have to make sure your providers are doing okay. And that we're seeing more and more of that physician well-being and measurement metrics and scoring. We saw a lot less of that when we started Augmatic. That's for sure. It's interesting. Yeah. You mentioned like three, four years ago, it's jumped a lot. I think a lot of it had to do with COVID potentially and all of that. How has COVID actually impacted Augmetics as well? I'm sure there's been some rearrangements or something internally. We grew every year during the pandemic and nicely. So in a weird way, we thrived amidst the tragedy there. It so happens that if you really boil it down, we're in the business of saving provider time and alleviating them from the burden of the EHR. Providers are just as busy during the pandemic <laughs> over telemedicine visits as they are otherwise. And they're really distracted. They're back-to-back in visits over these televisits. And they don't have an MA around them to help. And they're playing tech support with a patient. If ever you needed some help <laughs> to have someone help you with your EHR and your note, you need it more over your Zoom back than you even did previously. We actually stood up a workflow in the first couple of months of the pandemic that we would ambiently document over a telemedicine visit video call, just as we're having a video call now. And we would just be riding along on that call, performing ambient documentation to alleviate providers in that regard. At that time, I want to say 50 to 60% of our daily volume was over telemedicine like that. Today, it's probably closer back down to 5%, but it's still a meaningful percent. Really? I'm surprised it, it's dropped that much back to 5%. The use of Augmetics with telehealth, because I figure telehealth is an obvious place to use ambient documentation. This way, the provider doesn't have to really do anything after the visit ends. Just check to make sure that the notes are accurate instead of typing them out, which they do now. Are you seeing a lot more integrations with telehealth companies or is that a requested feature? You know, what we, had to, we are ultimately our customers like the health system, like the Common Spirit or the Sutter, the Adventist or the Northern Light. They purchase Augmetics for their providers. And then they tell their providers, hey team, we're going to use Zoom, we're going to use Docfee, we're going to use you name it. And so then our job is to make sure we work on those platforms on the days when they need us to, and, and we've figured that out. But we generally don't really integrate and sort of channel through the pure play telemedicine companies, at least not yet. It's actually an interesting idea. We're in some of those conversations. But as of now, our lighthouse is the health system itself. Got you. Yeah, I'm just thinking like in combination with AI bot as well as Augmetics capabilities, it could be really interesting to see how a patient could interact with 
just AI in the future, at least for some things. Just to clarify, Augmetics is primarily a provider used product. Patients don't use Augmetics in any shape, way, or form. That I understand. They have to opt in, right? When they're greeted by the front desk for MA and explained why, they do experience a change in the benefit and that the provider is paying attention to them, spends more time with them. And believe it or not, if they were to look at the notes, which sometimes they do, because a lot of providers opt into what's called open notes, where a patient can log into the portal and see it, they'll see that the notes are completed faster and they're more thorough and they're more legible because we improve documentation quality. These are all benefits to the patient. But even setting that aside, really our lighthouse customer is the provider itself. So are those notes in like separate app that patients go under or would that just be their normal my chart or something like that in their EMR? We live and die by the way the EMR is set up as for the health system. The resting house of the final note is Epic, it's Turner, it's Allscripts, it's whatever EHR the health system uses. And that's a decision they've made long before they met us. Now, I encourage this. Increasingly, health systems have patient portals. You mentioned my chart. There are others where a patient can log on and see the note. And that's great. And in which case, they, I think that engages them with their care. And sometimes they catch errors. And there's all kinds of positive reasons. If anything, we're seeing that the use of Augmetics promotes open notes. A lot of physicians are somewhat reluctant to make their notes transparent, quite honestly, because they're written or oftentimes delinquently submitted. But when you have Augmetics kind of handling it, making it great, making it fast, we can increase the uptake and um, compliance to physicians and providers accepting these of open notes. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. And it makes sense that if they don't have the notes ready, they don't really want their patients seeing premature notes, I guess. That's fair. So there's a lot of data being shared, transmitted, stored on this platform, I'm sure. And I know that Augmetics being compliant with all the regulations has figured out a way to ensure that the data is secure. But can you describe, if you can, I know you're not the technology officer, but maybe what Augmetics does to ensure that the data that's generated from these visits with their patients, providers' patients, is kept secure even while it's being processed with AI? Yeah, we've been put through the ringer as well we should be by our 20 conservative health system customers to make sure we pass the rigorous standards. And let me just give you some examples of what we do. The stream, the media stream is encrypted end to end. Usually, with some exception, we provide single-purpose front-end devices that runs our app, nothing but our app. So it's, it's extremely locked down in that regard. The back-end, when we have humans in the loop that review those MDSs, they're sitting in Fort Knox environment in secure terminals that, again, run our app and nothing but our app, no USB keys available, no pen, paper, phones in their pocket left outside. Everything's audited and observed, and that's kind of how they are operating this hyper-clean room type of environment. So we encourage our health systems to look under the hood and visit. We think it's actually a kind of a feature and not a burden that we've invested so much in that. And we've been able to convert some of the most conservative health systems to trusting us and our ability to do this. So anyway, we've never had any material breach and we feel really good about our security and compliance. That's great. And one of the potential promises of blockchain is to create more secure data repositories, almost in a way using blockchain and transmitting it. But it's so inefficient. It's terribly inefficient at this point. It's like impossible to do, especially at the scale that you have it at Augmetics. It's just a thought like I think about often like when or if will we see 
all these data flows going on the blockchain. And to me, it's like, I don't know anymore. It's a weird situation. I think eventually there'll be systems that are efficient enough to handle this sort of data transmission frequency, but definitely not yet. And essentially the reason is, I think, who owns the data. So of course, Augmentics has some responsibility for keeping it safe, but the ownership of the data itself, the notes, the result is with the health system. Is that right? It is. And the health system has obligations to their patients as well regarding access to the note. We we contract with the health system to make sure the note is placed there. And that's the ultimate system of record. We have very limited things about what we can do with the note data. Among those things is the ability to improve our models to more efficiently deliver the service with higher quality and higher scalability. Um, so we do iron out those provisions with our health systems to do that in a very narrow and compliant way. Interesting. Do you have any negative feedback that you received maybe from your customers where it helped you to potentially improve or add a feature or remove a feature? Feedback's the greatest gift. So keep it coming. If there are any providers out there, email me. They generally do. Let's talk about hardware. There's no one size fits all. A lot of providers have varying views. Some love glass, some doesn't fit their head, it's in their hair. They don't like it aesthetically. There's a, been a lot of feedback about hardware stands, positioning. That's what's catalyzed to create a plethora of multi hardware options for people over the years. What else? I mean, just things you would expect. Everyone gives us feedback is actually how we optimize the notes for a provider. So every, when we go live with a provider, it takes about five to 10 shifts for us to get to perfect steady state. At the end of each visit, like when you get out of an Uber, you have to rate your day with on a five-star scale. And then you also have the option to leave a voice qualitative feedback. It's really important that providers give us that feedback in the um, setup implementation process because that really allows us to make sure that the notes are calibrated to what they would like. And that's kind of what we dial in their permanent note styles. And so that's an important feedback loop that we have. And then it's important that they give us feedback along the way with those five-star ratings because if ever they leave us a one or two or three stars, our customer success teams should put on the phone with them. Where do we miss the mark on Tuesday? What can we do better? So we're very feedback-centric. I think today, 95% of our users consistently rate us four or five. So we definitely react if someone by the end of the day leaves us a three. That's interesting. So if I were a provider, have patients, primary care, and I want to get something like Augmedics, what would be the process in terms of like implementation? What would I as a provider need to help Augmedics with in order for us to, as a team, work out this yeah. workflow? There's kind of two ways to get automatics if you're a provider for your doctor. So one way is if you're an independent provider, you can just call us up and we, you can contract with us directly. We'll send you devices. We'll set you up remotely and we'll serve you your independent EHRs like Athena or modernizing medicine or whatever you use. But the majority of our providers are employed within these large enterprise health systems. It's somewhat difficult for an individual doctor just to get permission to use Augmatic in a large system. So what typically has to happen is you need an, a VIP champion, like a typically a CMIO, Chief Medical Information Officer. But we sometimes have other leaders and operations people or heads of innovation that basically kind of usher us through the sales cycle. Typically, what we would do with a large enterprise is start with a tranche of 10 or 20 providers of various sorts. Prove that we can add value, deliver quality, meet ROI metrics, and we'll agree on those metrics. And then once we prove that, and we typically do, 
we'll begin that pace of expansion through the health system and just more tranches of providers coming online to the service. So basically, if you're a provider and you want automatics, you need to cajole your CMIOs and your medical directors to call us up and give us a shot. Got you. And then so more granularly, the process after the CMIO says, let's do this, sign a contract. And the first 20 doctors are like, you have somebody come on site and observe and then share templates on how this works. And then they just do it for like you said, 15 shifts. There's a lot of steps to get that first tranche up and running. Once you figure it out, getting tranche number two, three, and four is a lot simpler. But doing the first tranche up and running, first of all, getting the legal contracts finessed is, is no small task with a large health system. But second to that, there's a lot of IT steps that need to happen. We need to make sure that we are on the right Wi-Fi networks with our devices. We need to make sure there's no Wi-Fi dead spots. We kind of work with the IT department to confirm that. We will also work with the IT department to make sure that we have either EHR login credentials or EHR integration in place so that we can download and write back to whatever EHR you use. We have ways of doing that pretty quickly and efficiently, but nonetheless, that usually takes a few weeks or sometimes months for a large enterprise health system on their first tranche. And then with the providers, we want to make sure that they know how to use the device, they're a good fit, that we agree on metrics and why we're here and that we're measuring those metrics correctly. Sometimes if you go up and you don't agree on the metrics on on day one, they become really wonky to measure and track later down the road. There are these best practices around standardization, verbalization, active listening that are really good to confirm and instill. And so we select for that and we go live with that through remote education sometimes on-site education to make sure those first tranches of doctors and providers are successful. So it's a whole orchestra of things that need to happen to lead to success there. Yeah, that makes sense. I appreciate you sharing that. In terms of regulatory compliance and technology innovation, sometimes people say those can conflict with each other because government is a little bit slow in adopting new policies that make sense for our current state of affairs of things. How do you feel has been your experience pursuing medics in the clinics, I'm sure it wasn't like the next day people were like, sure, put a camera and microphone in here and let's do it. There was many steps, right? When we first founded Augmatics, people thought it was a great idea and they thought, hey, you know those humans in the loop that you use for QA? Why don't you locate them on-prem here in the broom closet over there? And we, of course, did at great expense to us. And then it took a lot of trust building for us to work through their contracts and be able to remote human operators for quality, which really allows the solution to scale at an affordable rate. Right? And that's just kind of one vivid example. We get put through the ringer when it comes to all sorts of HIPAA compliance related things, all sorts of state-by-state rules and regulations pertaining to recording and consent. But we've more or less mastered that. At the end of the day, it's not all that high burden. Thankfully, we, we don't have to submit to FDA regulation. The reason is we're really not making medical decision-making, basically. We are acting as the, the proverbial pencil of the provider, and they ultimately have to sign off and review. And so for that reason, we don't have the strictest of rules to adhere to, and we certainly don't have to become FDA compliant. Thank goodness. Yeah, that's a good point, especially on the product side of things. Thanks for sharing that. For the initial public offering that you also experienced in preparing for that, can you share some stories about how that went and like maybe what you learned or what you thought was like surprising? Yeah, it requires so much preparation that it's almost like a non-event when it actually happens. I would also say that for a large late stage private company, you have to be so buttoned up 
when it comes to finance and accounting and compliance, that you're pretty ready to be a public company these days with all of the tools available. But yeah, you know, it, it really puts you on the map when you're a public company, you're perceived in a different way by your employees and by your customers. It's very rewarding for me as a founder also just to know that we're not scraping by wondering if we can meet payroll the next month. But this is a going concern, large company serving thousands of employees. And so it's just a very satisfying feeling just to, to see the company make it to that level. But we, of course, don't want to be hubristic about it. And get, we want to keep that sort of it's day one, Dolores Park, San Francisco moonshot mentality while we at the same time operate at scale. So that, that's just some quick reactions. Yeah, it was also that- interesting to do that in the middle of the pandemic also. Yeah. Sure. No, absolutely. When I was at Amwell, actually, we went through an IPO during the pandemic as well. So it was quite interesting. I appreciate you answering these questions. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. In this corner, I'll be talking about the tragic earthquake disasters that rocked southern Turkey and bordering northern Syria on February 6, 2023. More than 46,000 people have been killed and many still missing under the rubble from 264,000 apartments destroyed from the quakes. My family has been directly impacted by the earthquakes. It's been a tragedy to lose so many relatives in a single week. The survivors have mostly moved away from the disaster zone as they try to rebuild their lives. When I speak with them, they all recognize that recovery will take many years. Humanitarian issues continue to get worse as over a million people are homeless and are having trouble finding food, water, and heat. Some citizens are expressing political dissidence and anger towards the government for granting amnesty to builders, easing building reinforcement expectations that might have prevented many of these buildings from falling. There are also regulatory issues with sending money overseas to help fund relief efforts for the affected survivors. Many don't know who to trust or how to donate their money effectively. Just like with previous global disasters, cryptocurrencies and NFTs have played an interesting role in raising awareness and funds through decentralized networks. Many NFT projects and DAOs have been announced, collectively raising millions of dollars for Turkey. One way my brother Rudy and I tried to help was by setting up a Doctors Without Borders nonprofit fundraiser through the Giving Block organization. The community has donated over $10,000 in cryptocurrency so far, and we are very grateful to the crypto community. Ultimately, the impact to blockchain adoption is minimal, as most crypto recipients will sell their tokens for fiat, often paper currency, to be able to buy supplies or render services. An important reminder that blockchain technology is still fairly new to society. Obviously, no blockchain could have prevented the earthquakes from happening or prevent many of these buildings from collapsing over people. However, it is possible that blockchain can streamline value exchange across borders through decentralized virtual currencies. Also, it can potentially offer transaction transparency among building contractors, ensuring quality materials and earthquake-resistant systems were at the very least purchased when promised. My sincere condolences to all those who lost family members and friends in the recent earthquakes. Hundreds of aftershock tremors continue to affect the population, and they will be dealing with the aftermath for many years to come. Thank you for listening to this rather solemn news corner. I really do appreciate you. 
and your thoughts and your prayers. Check out the episode show notes for links to all News Corner resources. And now let's get back to the remainder of our inspiring conversation with Ian Shaquille, co-founder of Augmentics. I have a few more that are more personal that we get through. And then okay. I think uh, we can wrap up with any takeaways that you have for the audience. So one is, what's the most influential book you've read? You know, I'll just name one that comes to mind immediately. I love this book called Impro. It's vaguely about Im- improvisation. I just think one of the most valuable things I've done in school and post-school is being, being involved in, in improv. And it, it sets you up really nicely to be an authentic, listening, supportive, malleable human in the world of business and entrepreneurship. I appreciate that. What are your thoughts about the singularity that is supposed to happen in 2045? I sometimes tone it down when I'm speaking to conservative health system people, but I'm very much a techno-optimist, singularity is near kind of a guy. Sign me up. I'll be the first to kind of do the upload. Awesome. And uh, following that question, kind of related, if you had to have a microchip implanted (laughs) in your body, where would you want it implanted? Yeah, I kind of just answered it. But yeah, yeah, I think uh, if you think what Augmentics is doing, it's augmenting people by placing sort of high density technology right around your eyes and ears. I think the natural step is to take that one step forward and just put it on this side of the skin and get it in there and it'll open the pipe a little bit more. So yeah, I think you, you put it in the brain and there's a lot you can do to expand <laughs> what it means to be alive and what it means to compute and what it means to communicate. I appreciate it again, Ian. Is there any last final kind of words you want to say to the audience? No, I think it's been an awesome conversation. We've covered it all from brain implants to HIPAA compliance. I think it's an exciting the world of ambient computing, especially in the world of healthcare. I think it's also the topics we've covered around augmented reality just have so much applicability in healthcare. I hope others can listen to this and think about other use cases for these platforms both in healthcare and other places. So yeah, follow me on, on Twitter, Ian Shaquille, and um, let's, let's do big things. Awesome. Thanks again. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.